Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Matthew 23, 1 through 13. And when I am finished, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond. Thanks be to God. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fingers long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, the greatest among you, shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, Pray with me one more time before we get started. Father in heaven, oh God, we come today to worship you, to... um, to sing praises to you, to lift high the name of Jesus, to look upon him and be changed, to be transformed more and more into his image. That's our heart, Lord. That's our desire coming here today. And Father, I am a weak man, nothing but a a messenger. And Lord, um, I ask you that you would um, fill me up Fill this little jar of clay with your spirit that I might proclaim truth in a way that has power. And Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would pierce to the hearts of every person in this room, that you would grant to us ears that we might hear what you have to say to us. And we ask that you would do a transforming work in our lives, Lord, that we would not be hearers of the word, 
uh, but leave and not do what your word says. So Holy Spirit, we can only do that if you help us. So be our teacher. Be our instructor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Magnify his name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Ben. If uh, we haven't met yet, I'm really happy that you're here with us. And um, this is a church that exists to help as many people as possible find and follow Jesus. That's our mission. So uh, what that means is that if you're here and you're looking for answers, we hope that you find Jesus who has all the answers today. And if you're here this morning and you already follow Jesus, our hope is that you would follow him more closely as a result of today. Um, we're going to be digging into the word together and looking at this. Um, so if you came and you forgot a Bible or don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you in the back. And if you want to slip your hand up, um, Hannah will magically drop one of those in your lap. Um, and you can use that Bible today or you can um, take that home with you and that's our gift to you. So uh, slip your hand up if you would like a Bible and don't have one and she'll get one to you. Uh, so this morning we're going to be learning from the poor example of the scribes and Pharisees again. And um, this is not our first time learning from their poor example. But uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had heads full of Scripture, but lives that didn't match the Scripture. And um, deeds that didn't match the Scripture. They... Um, they failed to put what they knew into practice. And that's the quickest way to become a Pharisee, is learn a whole lot of Scripture, put a whole lot of Scripture into your head, be able to even teach other people the Scriptures, um, but then don't put it into practice yourself. That is how we become hypocrites and Pharisees. Um, this sermon today we are, is going to be a little different than what we would typically do because I want to lay a good bit of groundwork before we dive into this passage, um, I feel the freedom to do that because this is actually going to be a two-part sermon. Um, and so today we're just covering part one, and uh, we'll dig deeper into this passage next week. Um, but today I want to lay a good bit of groundwork before we actually uh, get into the words here in Matthew 23. Because there's something I want us to understand that's going to be really, really helpful to be able to get out of this passage what we need to see. Um, so let's do some big picture thinking. When you think about Paul's ministry, what was, what was the goal of Paul's ministry? I want you just to think, you don't have to say it out loud, I just want you to think what was the goal of his ministry. And if you've been around for a while, this stuff isn't brand new to you, maybe your mind said, well, it was to glorify God. And I would say, Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but what was it that he was after that would glorify God? What, what was it that he wanted to see that would glorify God? And I think one good place to, to find this is in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. Galatians 4.19 says this, My little children, for whom... I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ 
is formed in you. This is what made Paul feel like he was in the anguish of childbirth. This is what kept him up at night. This is what got him up in the morning. He wanted to see those who knew Jesus be transformed into his image. In other words, what Paul wanted to see that he knew would bring great glory to God was life transformation or formation. Formation into the image of Jesus. That was the goal of all of Paul's ministry and all of Paul's discipleship. And it is still the goal of ministry today. It's the goal of discipleship today. It's the goal of the church today that people would be formed into the image of Jesus. But how does formation happen? That's, that's the question that any, any person who wants to change should ask themselves. How does this happen? How does a person who has met Jesus, has come into relationship with Jesus, become more like him? Because that's just the very beginning of the journey, isn't it? Right? This isn't just about um, we believe, we put our faith in Jesus, and then it's just clear, you know, it's just smooth sailing to, from here on out. We just kind of kick our feet up on the, on the couch of life, right, and take it. That's not, that's not what the Bible says, right? The Bible would tell us to, to strive for holiness, right? The Bible would tell us to pursue righteousness, to flee from sin, right? And so the question is, how does formation happen? How do we change? How do we go from where we are to looking more like Jesus? How does that happen? And I hope if you're sitting here this morning that there's something in you saying, I want that. I want more of Jesus in me. I want to look more like him. I want my life to be a better reflection of him. I don't want to stay where I am for the rest of my life. And I think that's probably why you're here. So I'm preaching this message with the assumption that you want this. I believe you do. So how are people formed? And I'm going to simplify it into two things. People are formed by beliefs or ways of thinking and practices, ways of living. Beliefs, ways of thinking, and practices, ways of living. Ways of thinking, ways of living. So beliefs are step one, you could say, or the first ingredient, the most important ingredient in some ways, that a, that a person is formed or changed. Spiritual formation begins with believing the right things. That's incredibly important. Your mind might go, if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, to where he talks about this in John chapter 8, where he says that the truth sets people free. Or your mind might go to Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're transformed as our minds are renewed, as we, as we learn to think in line with what is true. And the Bible talks about the fact that we're held captive by lies, that Satan is the father of 
of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. That means that all lies and all lying, all deceit originates with him. And so lies and deceit characterize his domain, his rule, his leadership. And we need to learn the truth in order to break free from bondage, in order to be changed, to be formed. And so we have to learn what are the cultural assumptions. What are the cultural assumptions that I have believed that do not align with the Scripture? So for you, if you're new to this whole journey, that might begin with the question, well, What is truth in the first place? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? And I'll tell you there is. It might begin with the question of where can that truth be found? And the answer would be it's found in the Word of God, in the inerrant and sufficient Word of God. But it would be it would go beyond that to asking questions like what does the culture tell me? What have I just adopted from the culture around me that that's telling me that this is what the good life is, right? What, what, is, what does our culture tell you the good life is? It probably has to do with success and money and power. Um, what is the goal of work? That's a, another question we need to ask ourselves. What has the culture around us told us that the goal of work is or how I should parent or where I find my identity And notice I said, find my identity. You don't create your identity. Your identity is given to you by something, someone outside of you. And so this is where we have to start. We've got to start by breaking down what are the cultural assumptions. I say assumptions because here's the the thing. Most of what we believe that we picked up from the world around us, we aren't even consciously thinking that we believe it. We just do. We just believe it because we have picked it up from the culture. So we have to pray. We have to ask God for revelation. And we have to dig into his word to find it. We need to believe the right things. That is step one in formation. This is why here at New King we're passionate about sound teaching. Um, because, uh, because it's through the preaching of the word, through, through sound teaching, that a church becomes healthy, right? And so any church that veers away from sound teaching will immediately begin to crumble. Sound teaching is um, also known as orthodoxy. Um, so orthodoxy means correct doctrine or correct teaching. The word ortho, it means straight or correct. So think about the orthodontist. What what does he or she do, right? Straightens, corrects your teeth and your bite. Um, So orthodoxy is correct doctrine. And this matters very much. That's the first ingredient in transformation. We need to, we need to Grow in orthodoxy, in, in correct teaching, correct beliefs. But the next thing, there's two, remember, beliefs and practices. Practices are ways of living. Ways of living. And um, 
It says in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. That's teaching, right? That's orthodoxy. Consider the outcome of their way of life. The way of life, that's their practices. And imitate their faith. Notice that it isn't just what a leader teaches that makes them worth following, according to the writer of Hebrews, but also their way of life, that their way of life is producing the right kind of outcome. Your way of life is producing something. Not just what you believe, but the way you live. And so good leaders do more than just teach correct beliefs, which is orthodoxy. They model correct practices. And Paul talks about this over and over and over again. We're going to look at three places. I could have picked about ten where this comes up in his letters. Philippians 4.9. He says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things practice these things don't just memorize them don't just study them practice them practice these things and the god of peace will be with you not just because you know them because you practice what you've seen Philippians 3.17, same letter. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is practices. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you it was to give you in ourselves an example to imitate these are practices paul didn't just teach correct beliefs he modeled correct practices his life in other words didn't look like everyone else's this is very important because Too often in the church, in particular the church in America, we think that Christianity is all about piling the right stuff in your head. And that then you can go and you can go and live and be and do all in the world and and look no different than anybody else in your workplace, your neighbor, your family, as long as you got the right stuff piled in your head. See, Paul, his life looked different. It was unique. And that's why he would say things like, follow my example, imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, he would say. His regular, everyday life, his rhythms, you could say, had noticeable differences What he did from morning to evening was different from the world around him. And over and over again, he points to this. And he says, imitate me. So let's just put ourselves back in 
the first century, and just imagine that we had the opportunity to follow Paul around, and, um, and let's just, let's use our sanctified imaginations here. Let's, let's imagine that we get to watch him throughout his days, and he wakes up in the morning, and we say, okay, okay, when he wakes up, he first, the first thing he does is he gives thanks and praise to God for a new day. I should do that. Okay, so now, what's he, okay, so now he's going. He's spending his very first time meditating on the scriptures and, and praying and talking to God. He's putting God very first, giving God the first moments of his day. I should do that. And then he eats breakfast and he thanks God for every bite. And, and you can see that he sees that that comes from the Lord who provides for him. And so you think, okay. I should do that. And he walks to work. Because remember, he wasn't just a minister of the gospel. He was a tent maker. So he's walking to work, and you notice he's walking slowly. That's different. He's not in this big hurry like the world around. It look, it's like he's, he's talking to God as he goes, and he's paying attention to what's happening around him. That's unique. It's like he's looking for God at work everywhere he goes, and you can't do that if you rush. I should do that. And then at work, he works hard, and he works with excellence, as though he's working for Christ when he's making a tent. And, and he works with joy, and he sings while he works. And so you think, okay, I should do that. And so on and on and on we could go with this imagined experience but you see the point is that it's his way of living that he wants imitated his life was different his life was different um and it's because his practices were different and this is called orthopraxy or orthopraxis and it is the same beginning word there, ortho, correct, or straight, praxi, or praxis, correct practices. Orthodoxy is for orthopraxy. We, 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 we learn correct beliefs in order that it would produce correct practices correct behaviors. And so when we talk about practices, this may help you, it helps me. Um, when we say practices, think habits. Too often, I think when we think about the behaviors of the Christian life, we only think about avoiding sin. Okay, and that is certainly important, that we that we know how to respond in temptation, that we know how to uh, put sin to death, kill sin. But, but the Christian life is, is much more than only avoiding sin. It, it is a life that is filled with God. It's, it's a life where every moment is spent with God. Think about that picture again of Paul. I, what I tried to paint a picture there of was as a person who's living every moment intoxicated with God. 
right? Aware of God, focused on God, attentive to God. And that produces a different kind of life, different habits. And I, habits are helpful because your whole life is basically habits, you, right? I mean, you, you go through the same routines day in and day out, week in and week out. And, and why is that? Well, that's how God made us. So most of your life, if you don't pay attention to your habits and you simply adopt the habits and behaviors and the practices of the world around you, most of your daily life will look just like the world and will not include God. Practices are our habits. Next slide. So anything you do repeatedly has a formative effect on your soul. Now we, we know that spiritual disciplines, for example, prayer and fasting, uh, Bible reading, silence and solitude, these, what we would call the spiritual disciplines, we know that those things have a formative effect on our soul. But we fail to realize that those aren't the only things that have a formative effect on our soul. Here's what I'm getting at. Your beliefs inform your behaviors. Yes, we know that. But do you know that your behaviors are also informing your beliefs? Do you know that what you do repeatedly is having a shaping effect on you? Let's just consider one example. Let's say that you wake up every morning, you roll over, you grab your phone. This is your habit. And, you know, you turn your alarm off and then you look to see what texts you have or emails you have or the news or whatever. That's a habit. It's not a belief. But is that going to have a formative effect on you, on your soul? Is that going to... Is that going to change your morning? I know it does mine when I do that, right? I let, I let whatever the news is saying or whatever text is waiting for me set my equilibrium for the day instead of God. So that's a habit, right? That's an easy habit to pick up that has a formative effect on your soul that's shaping you as you do it repeatedly. Or let's say, you attend church about once a month and s- instead of weekly. Does that have a formative effect on your soul? Absolutely. It's teaching you something. It's telling you something when you prioritize it about once a month versus weekly. Let's say that you watch TV every night. That's your habit. You get done with work. You have your dinner. You kind of just mosey into the living room and turn it on. And you just watch TV. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's two hours. I think the average, the average person watches about two hours of TV every day. That's a habit, right? It's not a belief, but is it having a formative effect on your soul? Absolutely. Or let's say you scroll through social media and you just do that for 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, 30 minutes here. That's having an effect on your soul. It's, pr- it's a practice that's forming you. Or let's say you feel empty and so you shop. 
You, you start thinking about something that you could buy that could kind of give you a boost. That's a habit that's forming you. Or let's say you pull out your phone in a moment of boredom. You're waiting in a line, right? Or you're sitting somewhere, you got somewhere early, you're waiting for somebody, you pull out your phone. Or whenever you're bored and you have a moment, or let's be real, you're in the bathroom, and you pull out your phone because it's downtime, and that's what you do in downtime, right? This is America, right? And now, that's not a belief so much as a practice, but is that forming you? Absolutely. It's teaching you something. It's teaching you this is where I go when I feel a little bit of emptiness and I need some space to fill instead of going to God in conversation, instead of going to God in prayer. Now, I want to consider something here. I think I give a lot of time to considering why the American church is as weak as it is. And I don't want to sound like I'm trying to bash us. I just, I give a lot of time thinking about this. And I think I'm, I'm talking about the church as a whole in America. Um, because I don't want the church, I don't want our church to be weak. I want us to be strong and deep, have souls of substance that aren't blown around by every wind of doctrine and every new thing that comes out on the news. I want to be people of substance, committed to the cause of Christ in love with Jesus. And as I think about the church in America, I, I, what I see is that the church in America is worldly, very worldly. And yet, the church in America has access to more solid teaching than ever has in history, in all of history. And so the question is, well, well, then what's happening? How are we, because the church is being formed more into the image of the world many times than, than the church is being formed into the image of Christ. So here's what's happening. The world is a formation machine, as John Tyson calls it. It is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting. The church is also meant to be a formation machine. It's just another way of saying we're meant to be people who make disciples, who form people into the image of Christ. But in this war of formation, the world is winning. In spite of all of our access to great teaching. And I believe that it is largely because we ignore this second piece to formation, which is practices, ways of living. We have a lot of Scripture oftentimes stored up in our heads, but lives that don't look any different from the culture around us, much like the Pharisees and the scribes. And so... Just as Ephesians 2, 2 says, we're following the course of this world. That's practices. That's ways of living. And so often the Bible says we're a people who are not given a spirit of fear, yet Christians are fearful. The Bible says that we're not to worry, and yet we're still often racked with anxiety. The Bible says to be self-controlled, and yet often we lack Discipline. 
The Bible says not to love money, and yet Christians often are living their lives to acquire it. The Bible says not to look with lust, and oftentimes Christians are addicted to pornography. The Bible says to set our minds on things above, and Christians are often addicted to our phones. So, again, this isn't, this isn't to beat us up. It's just to point out. It's, it's so that we can see rightly. Change comes when we see, when the light gets turned on. And we can see correctly. We can see that there's an issue, right? I hope you see it. And, and what I want to say, just to um, hammer home this point, is that this isn't just because we're born sinful. We are born in sin, and we have a sin nature. This is, this is more than that. It is also because of the world forming us into its images, into its image through its practices. So finally, this brings us to our passage in Matthew 23. Like I said, a lot of lead up to it, and we'll do part two of this next week, but Look at Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Jesus is saying, do what they tell you, but don't imitate their daily lives. They preach, but do not practice. They study, they memorize, they listen to sermons, they go to synagogue, they know the Bible, they can teach others the Bible, but their ways of living are all wrong. They have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. They focus on the first ingredient of formation, beliefs ways of thinking, but they fail with the second ingredient of formation, practices. And notice what Jesus says, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Jesus is saying, the emphasis on teaching isn't wrong. It's not throw out teaching, right? Not, he's not saying, so ignore that. The problem is not when, when someone is so focused on the word. I've seen this again and again in the church, where Christians say, Man, we have all this teaching, but we, we're not living it out. We're not, we have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. So we, let's just, we need to st stop sticking our noses in our Bibles. We, you know what? Preaching is it's not working, so we just need to stop preaching and start doing. No, no, no. That is absolutely wrong. That will lead you to the other side of the ditch. That will, that will never work. It never works when people do that. What Jesus is wanting to say here is, no, the focus on the word is right. So do whatever they tell you. Observe whatever they tell you. But right beliefs must be paired with right practices. Right beliefs must be paired with right practices. Again, orthodoxy is for orthopraxy. It's foundational for orthopraxy. You won't get orthopraxy if you remove orthodoxy. You won't, because orthodoxy is the foundation. For example, Romans, the book of Romans, written by Paul, the first 11 chapters are all about doctrine. 
all orthodoxy. Not until he gets to Romans chapter 12 does he make the transition. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The therefore in that verse means that all of the instructions that are going to follow this are based upon all of the doctrine that I have just laid out for 11 chapters. Orthodoxy is meant to lead us to orthopraxy. And when it doesn't, when we stop short of new practices, it makes us a hypocrite like the Pharisees and leads to spiritual blindness. That's the, that's the main thing that I see that Jesus um, pounds the Pharisees for in this chapter. <coughs> Sorry, leftovers from last week. Um, verses 16, 17, 19, 24, and 26, all Jesus says, you're blind. He says, woe to you blind guides in verse 16. You blind fools, in verse 17. You blind men, in verse 19. You blind guides, in verse 24. You blind Pharisee, in verse 26. And so, here's what happens when we have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. Here's how a person becomes a Pharisee. Here's how a person becomes a hypocrite. You become blind. I hope you get this. Pharisees don't know they're hypocrites. When we have hypocrisy in our lives, we're blind to it. We think, we think we're living a life that is pleasing to God because we know stuff, but we're blind to the ways that we are neglecting to live in accordance to what we know. Now, before we look at this, there's some specifics we'll dig into. We'll start, we'll look at the first three um, specific things that we can see in these Pharisees um, this week. We'll look at the rest next week. But before we dig in, I just want to say this. We, we don't look and study the Pharisees just to point the finger at the Pharisees. That, that is not the goal. <laughs> the goal is... What, what we need to do before we dig into this is to remember that our flesh is a Pharisee. Not your new nature, not who Christ, not the new, not the spirit that Christ has put into you. You're a new person. But your flesh that you're still at war with, that you're still battling, is a Pharisee. Through and through. And so we need to remember as we study this, that, that we're going to be prone to some of these things um, and, and that we need to see ourselves in this. Keep in mind that as you look at this closely, what you'll see is that Jesus is pointing out habits and sayings that the Pharisees had picked up from their culture, from their subculture of, in the, within the religious leadership, right? These were habits and sayings that they just sort of picked up along the way, never questioned, and don't we do the same thing? Don't we do this very thing? 
We have ways of doing things that have been modeled for us by the people around us. So, remember as we go into this, 1 John 1, 8, that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Until we escape this broken world that's under corruption, we're going to be in this battle with our flesh. Um, so we should assume that we have blind spots, which means you don't know what they are. <laughs> There's, they're blind spots. You don't know what they are. It requires the Spirit of God to, to open your eyes to what they are. And so that's what we're hoping for as we dig into, honestly, as we dig into any passage of Scripture, that the Spirit of God is giving you revelation to what your blind spots are, what my blind spots are. So, orthodoxy without orthopraxy leads to, um, there's going to be eight all total. Today we'll get to three blind spots. Um, Number one, the first blind spot that we'll see we'll look at is a critical spirit. A critical spirit. Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So the Pharisees taught righteousness by keeping the law. You do these things, then you will be righteous. And they convinced themselves that they were succeeding right? And so because they thought they were succeeding, they could see all the ways that all the people around them weren't measuring up. And this is what happens with, when you have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. It leads to seeing everyone around you with a critical eye. You become blind to how short you fall. And so you stop being able to see your desperate need for grace. And when you can't see your own desperate need for grace, what will happen? You will be incredibly critical of everyone around you. You'll fail to show grace to others. You might begin to have pet peeves about people. And you'll find that the list of pet peeves grows because everyone is annoying. Everyone around you just seems dumb, which implies that you're so smart You have it all figured out. And the result is that you stop growing spiritually. You read your Bible, you think think of someone else that needs to hear that. You listen to a sermon, you think about who you can send this to. Share it, by all means, but apply it to yourself first. You think about somebody in your community group that could really use that point. Somebody that you, you need to, to share that truth with before you've applied it to your own self. You see, Jesus doesn't say, don't take the speck out of other people's eyes. He says, get the log out of your eye first. Then you can get help, help your brother get the speck out. So, when we never feel the weight of our sin because we think we're measuring up, we begin to have a critical spirit for everyone else. Secondly, look at verses 5 through 12. Um, They were motivated by people-pleasing, prideful people-pleasing. 5 through 12. 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's the key to these next several verses. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings and the marketplaces, being called rabbi by others. But you're not called, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it's so easy to read a passage like that and think, okay, on to the next one. I don't struggle with that. Um, Not concerned with my phylacteries or how long my fringes are. Um, I haven't worried about the place of honor at a feast recently or the best seat in a synagogue, right? Nobody's calling me rabbi, (laughs) right? And we can read through that section and be like, on to the next one. I'm good there. But when we read these things, we should stop and say, wait a second. How do I guard my heart from this error of being, of eagerly desiring the the praise of men, from eagerly wanting to be approved by other people? How do I guard myself? Well, remember what caused this. They preach, but do not practice. It's the root problem underneath all of these problems that Jesus addresses. And practices, practices that the scriptures give us help to bring our hearts back to God. For example, the Bible tells us to pray in secret and your Father will reward you. The Bible tells us to fast in secret and your Father will reward you. To give in secret and your Father will reward you. Or in this passage, to humble yourself and God will exalt you. And what ends up happening when you practice these kinds of things that the Bible tells you to practice? Well, these practices shape your heart. They turn your heart to God so that your heart is naturally bent toward people pleasing in the flesh. Well, these practices shape your love, right? They shape your love for God. As you pray in secret and your Father rewards you, love wells up. As you fast in secret and your Father rewards you, love wells up. As you go to Him with your anxieties and lay them at His feet and He fills you with peace, love wells up. As you give in secret and you're remembering that you're laying up treasures in heaven, love wells up in your heart. Your habits, your practices shape what you love. And what you love shapes your motivation. You see, and the Pharisees didn't love God. And so the only thing left was an idol to take his place, the idol of men, to fill that void. So they lived to please man. Our habits, our daily and weekly practices are shaping what we love. So the spiritual disciplines of regular time in the Word and prayer and fasting and giving and solitude and confessing our sins and worshiping with the church and Sabbath, all of these things are meant to shape our loves to the heart, to shape our hearts to love God. 
And that is the power of habits. What the Bible teaches us is that it is not only because you learn the verse that says to love the Lord your God with all your heart that you actually end up loving Him. Because many people know that verse and do not love God. Now, do you need to know the verse? Yes. You need to know that truth. But the Bible would say that it is as you practice the commands of Scripture, as you put the commands of Scripture into practice, as you begin to learn to live your life in constant communion with Him through your habits, through your daily, weekly habits, that you begin to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And so the Pharisees preached the word but didn't put it into practice. So their heads were full of Scripture, but their hearts were far from God. And inevitably that leads to people-pleasing. Thirdly, um, orthodoxy without orthopraxy leads to missing the gospel. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So these scribes and these Pharisees, who were meant to be the teachers of Israel, they have the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, standing in front of them, their Savior, and they missed Him. And this is the scariest piece of having beliefs without putting it into practice, orthodoxy without orthopraxy. This is the scariest piece, is that it will cause you to miss the gospel, cause you to be blind to the gospel, cause you to forget the gospel of grace. Romans 10.3 says of the Jewish leaders that being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. The only thing worse than missing the gospel yourself is then teaching in such a way that others miss it as well. And that's what they did. They shut the kingdom in people's faces. People were being given an open door into the kingdom. And the way that they taught caused people to miss the gospel of grace. So we've got to be careful of hearing the word without putting it into practice. Because it will blind us. So I want to ask you as we begin to wrap this up. Have you been forgetting the simple, beautiful, glorious gospel? The gospel is good news for sinners. Jesus didn't come to die for the righteous. He came to die for sinners. To take the place of sinners. To take the wrath of God for sinners. For people who blow it. For people who have a Pharisee inside of them. For people who fail and fail and fail. Jesus came for those, for people who know they're sinners, who know they need grace. But when you focus on beliefs and neglect practices, you become 
blind to your own sinfulness and therefore blind to your need of grace. Jack Miller, a pastor who greatly influenced many other pastors that you would know, um, Tim Keller for, for one, used to say, cheer up, you're a, worse sin- you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And he's right. He's so right. We are far worse than we think. We are far worse than we realize. But we are also far more loved than we could possibly imagine. And so maybe you're here today and you don't know this God. Maybe you're here today and you're searching for answers. And the question that the Bible addresses is how can a holy God love wicked sinners in rebellion against him? And how can he do that and still be just? And the Bible says that the gospel provides the answer. The gospel is this, that Jesus, the perfect son of God, came and lived the perfect life that none of us can come anywhere close to living. He totally fulfilled the Father's will, totally obeyed the commands. He had no Pharisee inside of him, no hypocrisy inside of him, no double-mindedness at all. His whole heart was the Father's. And that Jesus, Jesus fully God and fully man, went to the cross in our place and took our sins on himself and absorbed the wrath, absorbed the penalty for all of our pharisaical lives, for all of our double-mindedness, for all of our sin and failure. He took that on himself, satisfied the wrath of God in our place. At the end, he said, it is finished. He was buried, and according to the Scriptures, he rose on the third day, declaring that anyone who would repent and turn to him in faith would be saved, would be forgiven, would receive new life in his name. We're going to to do a practice now that helps us to remember this. We're going to take communion together. So underneath your chair... Um, You should have one of these. Little wafer in the top, bread, and some fruit of the vine, some grape juice underneath. Communion is such a great example of what I'm talking about. A practice, right, that shapes your heart, does it not? And this is why we do this week in and week out here. It's a practice that strengthens our faith, right? Our practices do not make us right with God. just want to be really clear. It is faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that saves us. But practices help to strengthen that faith. And this is a great example of that. As we take communion, we're putting a practice in place that is strengthening our faith to point us back to Jesus, our only hope to be right with God. 
So if you are a believer, I want to invite you to partake in this with us. If you're not a believer, I would, I would ask you not to partake in this, but to take this opportunity to reflect on what we're talking about and pray. Ask God to say, show me yourself. I, I want to know you. I, I, I want to have a relationship with you. Or, or maybe you're not even quite there yet, but you just still have a ton of questions. Say, God, I want, I want to see what's true. Show me what's true. But for those of us who are believers, who have placed our faith in Jesus, let's take a moment to reflect upon what Jesus did for us on the cross. The gospel says that Jesus, the Son of Man, came and lived a perfect life in in my place and yours. Never the hypocrite. He never sinned. He practiced what he preached. His whole heart was the Father's. And as we take the bread, here's what we're remembering. Here's what, what the symbol of this. We're taking this, and it's going into your body and becoming a part of you. And faith does that. It takes Christ, his body, it, it, him, takes him by faith. He becomes a part of you, inside you. You're united to him. And that's why his righteousness can be credited to you. So let's take the bread and remember the body of our Lord Jesus that was broken for our healing. I got a defect. Some of the cups won't open, by the way. And now we want to take the cup. Hopefully yours opens. There should be two under your seat if it doesn't. And as we drink the cup, what we're doing is we're remembering his blood that was shed for us. When he hung on that cross, every drop of his blood was spilled. And we're remembering that it was, it's only because of perfect blood, divine blood, sinless blood, that was shed for us that we can be cleansed from all of our sin, all of our hypocrisy, all of our double-mindedness. We can be cleansed. This is the good news, church. We get a fresh start now because of his sacrifice the blood of jesus shed for the forgiveness of sins now as we close i want to give you an assignment for this week before we get to part two and here's the assignment this week I want to challenge you to start doing what the scribes and the Pharisees failed to do. And that is examine every single habit in your life. Everything that you do. And assume that any unexamined habit that you just picked up is leading your heart to unhealthy places. Assume that. And examine everyone and ask yourself this. What is this practice telling me? How is it 
shaping me. And next week, we'll pick it back up and we'll look at some new habits and how we can place new habits in our lives that shape our hearts to love God. Will you pray with me? Father, would you take this word and and let it go down into the soil of our hearts and germinate and bear fruit, grow up and multiply in our lives, Lord, that, that we, we might look back on this day and say, that was the day that I began to apply what I know to my very life, that every part, every aspect of my life is spiritual. It's not just church, not just when I'm reading my Bible or praying or in community group. My entire life is spiritual, and I began to make practices of what I know. Lord, may you use this teaching to change our lives, to form Christ in us. We ask it in his name. Amen.